you know a spot. But not just a spot. The spot. Actually, with the 2023 Nissan Frontier, you know a bunch of them. But the key to these great spots? Being able to reach them in the first place. Your spot is out there. Find your Frontier in the 2023 Nissan Frontier with standard 310 horsepower, advanced tech, and 281 pound-feet of torque. Got my Prevnar 20 shot. It's a pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. For us wise folks, it helps protect. I'm 19, strong. And asthmatic and at higher risk. Get vaccinated. But, but nothing when grandma speaks. Grandson listens. 19 or older with chronic conditions like asthma, diabetes, or chronic heart disease, or 65 plus, you may be at higher risk for pneumococcal pneumonia. Prevnar 20 can help protect you with just one dose. Prevnar 20 is approved for adults to help prevent infections from 20 strains of the bacteria that cause pneumococcal pneumonia. Continued approval may depend on a supportive study. Don't get Prevnar 20 if you've had a severe allergic reaction to the vaccine or its ingredients. Adults with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. Side effects include pain and swelling at the injection site, fatigue, headache, muscle, and joint pain. For full prescribing information, please call 1-855-213-2138 or visit Prevnar20.com. Ask your doctor or pharmacist about getting vaccinated with Prevnar20, even if you've already received another pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. From grandmothers who whispered in their baby girl ear, to fathers on dimly lit street corners instructing young soldiers to always keep their eyes open. You be queen. You were fire. You were passed through centuries on the hands of your daughters. They called you wisdom. Proverbs. On the backs of diamond-eyed schoolchildren who grew into hymnals recited by amethyst-holding urban philosophers who recited neighborhood commandments out of the windows of restored El Camino chariots to keep the warmth in their blood. Be wise. Be smart. Be black opal, brown quartz, bloodstone and prayer. Be every form of gem. See, king told scribe, scribe told son, son told wife, Wife told her daughter, and daughter told the ancestors, and the ancestors told me that you would come to give wisdom to thousands. They said you would come, dropping gems, dropping gems. Welcome to the Dropping Gems podcast. I'm Debbie Brown. This is our soft place to land. This is where we explore higher consciousness, but also make it so deeply uniquely applicable um, to our day-to-day lives and challenges. So this show is going to be so good. They all are, but I mean, today's show, I have a just exceptionally brilliant, amazing woman. Dr. Rita Walker is joining the show today. So we're going to get into that in just a second. We're really going to be exploring um, some of the deeper layers of our psychology, especially as it relates to experiences of racism, to experiences of structural oppression. Um, But before we get into this show, which is going to be a little equal parts juicy and maybe deep at the same time, uh, I want to start every show with pulling a card from my Karma Bliss Affirmation deck. Uh, These are all the affirmations that are found in my book, Crystal Bliss, but I have this beautiful deck that we created uh, that is going to be back on sale very soon. They've been selling out pretty fast, but we're working on that reorder. So I'm going to draw a card from there, read the affirmation, and really kind of set the intention, see where this 
see where this episode is going to take us. So let's see. Do a little shuffle. See what pops. Ooh, here we go. Oh, nice. Okay. So the affirmation uh, for this episode, and just gently close your eyes for a second and try it on, see where it lands, where it fits, what might come up uh, when you hear these words. But if you're able and if it's safe, just take a second to gently close your eyes. If this feels like a fit, affirm and repeat this statement for yourself. I am an honest and thoughtful communicator. I am an honest and thoughtful communicator. Take a deep breath in through your nose. Hold it at the top for a moment. Release through your nose. I am an honest and thoughtful communicator. And I'll add to the tail end of that with myself and with others. All right. If your eyes are closed, go ahead and gently open them. Rejoin us in our beautiful podcast space. Okay. So let's see where that card, that intention, that affirmation takes us through this show. I'll have some more thoughts at the end, along with the little soul work at the end of this episode. So we'll get into that too. And if you haven't yet, um, I would love if you took just a brief moment, uh, it takes about 30 to 60 seconds, depending on what you say, to rate and review this podcast. And if you feel so called, give me that five star, share any words that feel natural and relevant to you about your experience listening. I would be very grateful. All right. Today's episode, Dr. Rita Walker. Dr. Rita Walker is a clinical psychologist, an award-winning professor, and a leading scholar who has published more than 60 scientific papers on African-American mental health, suicide risk, and emotional resilience. Dr. Walker's impact has expanded beyond academia, and she has quickly become a fan favorite with the release of her first book, The Unapologetic Guide to Black Mental Health. Dr. Walker debunks myths about mental health, builds the case for psychological fortitude, and delivers practical advice for use in everyday life. Her charismatic vision and practical approach to life's challenges has led to numerous appearances on Good Morning America, The Breakfast Club, and NPR, among others. Major publications such as The Washington Post, The Los Angeles Times, and The Houston Chronicle often cite her expertise. Dr. Walker's eclectic mix of experiences positions her well to achieve her ultimate goal of bringing culturally informed psychological fortitude to both professional and lay audiences. We are fortunate to have with us today Dr. Rita Walker, who is a University of Houston professor, a psychologist, and a leading expert in African-American mental health. She is the author of the highly acclaimed new book, The Unapologetic Guide to Black Mental Health. And in this book, Dr. Walker offers insight to the mental health crises that are happening in the Black community, along with tools and strategies for practicing emotional wellness. Dr. Walker hails from Georgia and now claims H-Town, Houston, Texas as her home. 
And we have such a beautiful coming to being story uh, that that has been really lovely um, exploring together and big, big, big fan of the book. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Dr. Rita Walker. So welcome to the show, Dr. Rita Walker. Hi, Debbie. It is wonderful to be here with you. It is. We have been waiting for this moment, or at least I've been waiting for this moment for a while. I'm so excited um, to to finally have you on the show. You know, it was the way that we connected was so interesting. (laughs) It was so like, I feel like the pandemic really gifted me um, some beautiful relationships, especially with people in other states. And you were one of those beautiful pandemic gems for me. Um, and I think, how did we first connect? It was, it must have been the universe. Let me, let me first say that, Debbie, because it was kind of a cold email that I sent you from, um, based on another connection that I had, because I was looking for individuals to endorse my book. And you were someone that she had in her Rolodex. And she said, you know, I think Debbie Brown could be interested in something like this. So you didn't know me from anybody. Uh, but I emailed you and you were so gracious, which I just really appreciate to this day. Uh, and so that's how it all started. That's wow. Started. Yeah. Okay. I remember like, yeah, you, I remember you sent me an email and you, and you were sharing about your book that was coming out and it was so it, for me, it felt so divinely aligned because I was specifically in real thought and exploration with myself around understanding, especially complex post-traumatic stress. And I was like, where's the information around this? And then I get an email from you about your book, which is an incredible book that I hope everyone goes out to get called The Unapologetic Guide to Black Mental Health. And we're going to explore so much about that soon. And I remember you sent me an email like, you know, would you read the book? And I was like, oh my God, yes. Matter of fact, can you send me two copies? I was like, I need to send a copy to my brother. Um, and then you sent me books. I sent one off to him. And um, yeah, it, it, it has been amazing. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's really because of that, that the book has had as much visibility as it's had, to be wow. honest. I couldn't, I couldn't have imagined um, the lives that have been touched. And it really, it started with you, Debbie. It really did. Mm, what a, what a true honor for me. And then we finally had the chance um, to connect in person in New York last year. We were both a part of the Mental Wealth Alliance. And the brother that I mentioned is Charlemagne. Let me first give um, full honor and respect to that amazing being, Lenard. And he had an incredible event. And then you and I were both speakers at it. So we met in person at the same time. And Yeah, it was so wonderful to be with you. Your work is so, so, so important. And as I shared on the top of the show, you know, it just like the divine alignment. And I feel like you writing your book, you releasing your book when it did. I know that that book, especially coming out towards, you know, um, the beginning of the pandemic, I know that that this book probably saved countless lives. You know, I know that this book probably was really the piece that got people into acceptance with themselves or starting their journey. Um, and it's just it's just such a powerful body of work. And I'd love to I'd love to dive right in with you because, you know, you you're a professor at the University of Houston. You teach on some really challenging um, psychology there. You know, specifically. You teach diversity in clinical psychology, seminar in black psychology, theories and personality, and clinical practicum. And it's like, you know, 
mental health, and we talk about this quite a bit on the show, mental health, it's having this glorious moment in the sun that has never happened in humanity to this degree, right? We had like our Freud eras where we were given these like kind of deep shifting understandings, but then it felt like there was maybe a hundred years or so or more where not as much advancement was made, especially for non-white males. Um, That is typically the group that studied most often across all medical understanding, not just psychology. Um, And so, you know, I'm just so fascinated by the way you explore Black pain um, and you explore really the effects of racism. So I'd love to start with first, you know, what is complex post-traumatic stress, especially versus what we've come to know as a society as post-traumatic stress, which is most usually um, kind of showcased in an understanding related to war or service? Well, I think probably in its uh, simplest understanding is for individuals who experience a trauma and then they experience another trauma that's overlaying on top of that. And with the population that I'm thinking of as an example, when I work with individuals who are in mental health crisis and not quite sure if they want to live. And we had a circumstance, you know, within the last year in which a patient went to the hospital, she was hospitalized, her family was concerned, they didn't think she could keep herself safe. And while she was in the hospital, she was traumatized by a gentleman who came into her room. And so we had to figure out, okay, which trauma do we address First, because Whoa. in a lot of ways, having a man come into his room, and the man was another patient, so he wasn't you know, a provider, he wasn't a social worker, he was another patient. He made her uncomfortable. And so we had to figure out, okay, which part of her narrative do we address first so that we can have the maximum benefit for her? And for a lot of us, we experience just one thing on top of another, on top of another, and it's all it's all complex because we don't know whether we're coming or going. You know, survive. Who's trying to live when we have these really difficult circumstances that are important for us to work through in order to begin to connect with the divine, connect with a higher power, connect with our purpose, that we can't get there when we are overwhelmed with stuff. And we'll just call it stuff for now. A lot of us have it and we just don't recognize it because we're such a a resilient people. Oh my God. And everything that you just said, you know, I, I really want people to sink into this thought, especially after the show, because there has been this one really specific lens of healing um, in psychology and in spirituality. And I, I've been noticing that this is emerging a lot uh, in conversations that I'm having with different facilitators, more on the spiritual side of things. But You know, it's universal, whether it's psychology, whether it's people just in the country or it's spirituality, there is this real, um, this real blockage or barrier against understanding how this kind of compounded energy works and how nothing is a one size fixes all, you know, fits all like Everything has to be explored in a kind of a variety of ways because of what you're describing. It's not just the original wound, though that is the piece that we have to find to be free. But it's all the other wounds that got drummed up that that were the, you know, the shards from that original wound, the scrap metal from that original wound. Um, 
you know, it's, it's funny because mm. I was talking to my doctoral students today. I had, we had our three-hour seminar this morning. Um, and, and I know sometimes students are overwhelmed because they see people around them and they're feeling like I've got to pinpoint the perfect situation in order to be able to address all of the different symptoms and all of the different ways in which these challenges are manifest. And what I've said to them is you first have to get them to have an awareness Mm. of like a lot of folks are just in autopilot, Debbie. I mean, you know, this like folks are trying to get from day to day. Yeah. It's hard. A real awareness of the level of pain. And until we understand that we can't begin to do any kind of repair, Um, you know, until then, you know, we're just really going through the motions and some folks just want to know, like, seriously, how do I get out of bed? Like, I'm not worried. How do I take care of my children? I don't have Mm. the to do day to day things. And they just, and they also don't have the bandwidth to go deeper. So yeah, start with the recognition, you know, and start to, and I think people are starting to do that. I think the, the awareness is increasing, but I think it's increasing because people are so overwhelmed that they can't take it anymore. Um, so you mentioned, yeah. the book coming out, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, it was also three weeks before George Floyd was murdered. Wow. So in the middle of the pandemic, you know, dealing with this racial trauma and it's like, what do we do? Where do we go? We can't take it. Somebody help, you know, praying about yeah. it. Insufficient. Uh, we need something else. And I think that's why people are really getting to a place of this sort of crossroads. And at the crossroads, it's like, okay, somebody tell me what to do. Somebody send a lifeline. Wow. So something that's coming up immediately in what you just said is, you know, when we get to the piece of recognizing that there's work to be done, and I I really want to speak to this fatigue that we really experience. And if you are someone that has um, had abuse of any kind, mental, physical, emotional, spiritual, sexual abuse or traumas, you know, for so many, there is this awareness that God, I want my life to feel better, but it's going to be too hard because you do understand the layering involved and then what your current predicament looks like, what your time constraints are. And, you know, I think a lot of that, something that that you had expressed was giving ourselves the opportunity to feel. And I'd love to speak to, to Dr. Rita, like what the barriers to that actually are, because it's not that we're not ready to heal. It's not that we can't feel Sometimes it's really all of the pre-programming, especially culturally, this idea of forced resilience, this idea of, well, you push through and well, everything's fine. And well, you know, it's going to happen. Like we had to adopt these um, coping mechanisms that have been become so ingrained without the context to just survive the immense amount of constant disappointment, hardship, abuses um, that, that non-white people have faced in this country for their whole lives. You know, I think I think I start out the book by saying, like, who has time to be depressed? Like, we really yeah. like we don't have the time for that. Um, it's more of a luxury for other people. And I do actually wonder if there's a part of us that that isn't ready. And mm. I see time for therapy clients who show up because they are overwhelmed and they do want life to be different. Yeah. After like they can't keep doing what they're doing. At the same time, sort of the level of, we think about, you know, when you need surgery sometimes to fix a problem, 
Like the doctor might have said a year ago, you know, you really could use surgery. And you're like, well, if I can walk on this, you know, broken whatever for another few months, just tell me how long I got that I can walk on it. Mm-hmm. Um, once the, the motivation doesn't kick in until we're paralyzed, until we can't move any longer or move any further because we don't have the bandwidth. You know, we got too much on our plates, too many responsibilities, so many things on our minds that oftentimes we want things to be better, but we can't, we just don't have another gear to treat these issues. And I, I get it. I truly believe in meeting people where they are because we can't say, well, you should, you know, I'm on a one person mission to remove the word should from the, from the vocabulary altogether. We can't say, well, you should do better. You should want things to be different. Like that just doesn't, doesn't work mm-hmm. ourselves. We have to give ourselves grace and meet ourselves where we are and maybe say, okay, what's going on right now that's keeping me from making real change in my life? Because until we can answer that question, we can't move forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What is the role of racism on our mental health? What is the role specifically of like systemic oppression and microaggressions on our emotional health? That's something that um, as soon as I say this, I think all of us can bring forward just a multitude of experiences of that in our lives. But I think it's really prevalent right now as we watch um, some of the Supreme Court hearings that are at play, right? When you watch Kintaji Brown um, getting ready to be to become um, our next Supreme Court justice, which praise God, and I'm so, so grateful um, for that powerful, brilliant Black woman um, to be on the Supreme Court. I just have to like smile and feel such gratitude about that, but we've been watching, you know, these, um, these, these things unfold as, you know, she's having this, this grand inquisition and is something that has been coming out on social media is people are specifically pointing out the microaggressions at play or the way her versus like a Kavanaugh, when he was in the same situation, the way that she has to hold herself so reserved. And we look at that and we say, wow, that's so, you know, you might say, wow, that's so strong or look at her poise under, but that's survival. That is survival because there's not another option because any other behavior you will be villainized for. So that's my original question. But <laughs> what is the role, you know, of systemic oppression and microaggressions really on our emotional health? I know it's a, it's a heavy, heavy question. And actually, one thing I want to do is to disaggregate, if I can, microaggression and racism. Please. Because... The research actually suggests that microaggressions could be worse than overt racism. So those subtle things that happen that people say like, ooh, you're so articulate, but you're an educated person. Oh, my God. I am triggered right now. (laughs) You speak so well. Uh, Uh, Kinds of things as if, you know, I'm feeling that like as if. But the thing is, those who are on the receiving end of it are left trying to figure out like, okay, what do they mean? What are they trying to say? Am I being too sensitive? And we go through all these thoughts in our minds and that suggests, or or having to go through that cognitive process, Mm. 
the moment of whatever it is that we're supposed to be doing. It's a huge distraction, you know, and it, it replays, it replays over and over and over again because someone will come along and say, oh, they didn't mean it like that. Right. And what is like that? You know, like that's the thing that always kills me. Well, you know, it wasn't like that or they didn't mean it like that. What is like that? What is, what is the context for what we're saying right now? Yeah. Oh, it's funny. I'll never forget when I was in training, I had to do a memory assessment for an older white gentleman. And I was asking him questions. And after a while, he ran out of the room and his daughter came in and and she kind of looked at me and she just had like, she said, are you doing the assessment? And I said, yes. And she was, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it like that. That's what she said. And then I looked at her like, what was the like that? And she said, and I didn't have to say anything. She already knew. Well, he had all daughters. And so he was probably uncomfortable answering questions, you know, for one. Sure. Um, so they know what the like that is, but it'd be yeah. nice to actually answer that question. Mm. But, in, but these are honest conversations that we need to have, especially in this place of racial reckoning, um, that it's not our responsibility to answer these questions for those who are perpetrating microaggressive and racist behavior. So yeah. I want because I do think a lot. Go ahead. Thank you so much. And before we even get into the part on like systemic oppression, racism, I'd love to ask like if you have examples of how microaggressions show up in a child parent dynamic and in a friendship dynamic. Like, how are we really out in these streets experiencing these microaggressions? Because what you just highlighted is, you know, the tremendous amount of emotional and mental fatigue and exhaustion that takes place every time you have to do those, those really mental gymnastics around these aggressive, aggressive behaviors. Well, you know, I mean, the kinds of things that, that come to mind for me and what you mentioned, child, parent, child relationships. Yeah. I actually need for you to, if you're thinking in a certain direction, I might need you to help me out a little bit. Yeah. Well, you know, I think for a lot of people right now, especially listeners of this show, there is certain kind of investigations taking place within ourselves. And so I think a lot of people right now are on this beautiful, but very um, deep journey of reparenting in some ways and noticing, um, you know, certain behaviors that may not have lived up to these false ideals in society of what family of origin can look like. So I think a lot of people are exploring where their interactions with their parents um, or with other family members, you know, where some microaggressions are at play or, you know, deregulated emotional communication. Um, And I think as well, you know, in our friendships, because a lot of people from the pandemic are exploring, like, what are the relationships that are serving to me? And what are the ones that may have been keeping me bound that I wasn't able to pay attention to because I had never heard of terminology like microaggressions, or I haven't heard of, you know, gaslighting or or whatever the behaviors are. So maybe even like these these cross-racial friendships where mm. Uh, well, I, I want to understand. Tell me more about your experience. Does that sound like something that folks have struggled with a lot? I think a lot, especially in the corporate space right now. Yeah, I think a lot because there's there is this reckoning happening in these conversations that. Um, yeah, yeah, I think a lot of that is coming forward and it. It's coming forward in a way that we're also in real time allowed to stand up for self to correct it. Um, But I think people are probably noticing, you know, things that were never called that before that it's like, oh, whoa, I have language for this. 
You know, it's it's interesting because of the circumstances that have brought this to the fore, right? So, you know, friends who have said things and people just blew it off because they they tried to help their friend. Like, oh, they didn't mean it like that. But when we're at kind of like a tipping point of racism and that we have been since George Floyd's murder, the yes, people are starting to reevaluate, like, what does that mean when they say that? And mm-hmm. it's because people have lost friendships from friends seeming like, oh, I don't even see you as Black. Like, oh, my God. What does that mean? <laughs> right. First of all, it's not there, a- <laughs> there, I Like, I feel like across the world right now, everyone is like, girl, like there is like, there have been these like such cringeworthy conversations um, with everyone <laughs> You know, and it's funny, I actually reached out to a friend of mine who is a white male to say, like, look, I need you to figure out how to help your people because mm. we need folks in your community to figure this out amongst yourselves, you know, without yeah. further coming to yeah. us and laying this burden to say, okay, tell me what's going on for you as if they've been, I don't know, some, well, not as if, the privilege, you know, the privilege of what it means to be a white person in society, having no idea of what it's like to be African-American, to be a yeah. descent in the world, because it's not just in the U.S., like internationally. I've heard from folks saying, like, I know you talk about this in the U.S., but in London, we're going through the same thing. Mm-hmm. Racism is the same thing. Mm-hmm. Right? where we are. And we know that our friends mean well, but they're also very much protected. And that's not the case for all friends, right? Like we have some white friends, you know, who will go hard in the paint. You know, if they think we've been disrespected, yeah. they have to stand up or they don't have to ask questions because they've been investing in that relationship and who you are, who we are. Yeah. Others, we're realizing that those relationships just aren't as deep as that other friend may think that that relationship Oh, that's what it is. Yeah. And this is a real, like, I know me personally kind of related, non-related, but this whole season for me has been about that, uh, really just about casual friendships are okay. I just don't have the time in my life right now for a lot of them. And so I, I had to really sit and identify what are the relationships that have the depth that really speaks to my life and my soul and matter to me. And, you know, there's only so many hours in the day and you do make time and priority for what matters. And so I wanted to be really specific about that. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's a that's a whole other podcast for another day. Well, and I, let me add one other thing because it, it does vary per person. And one of the I'm, I'm very clear, even as I talk about in the book, you know, everyone has a different bandwidth. You know, everyone can yeah. tolerate, but for so much, mm-hmm. I'm someone who has always had very very little toleration for the stuff. Other people are realizing they have less, and other folks are okay. You know, they're fine. And they're fine saying they didn't get it or they didn't understand. We just have to be honest, you know, with ourselves as individuals about where we are and what's okay. You know a spot. But not just a spot, the spot. Actually, with the 2023 Nissan Frontier, you know a bunch of them. But the key to these great spots? 
being able to reach them in the first place. Your spot is out there. Find your frontier in the 2023 Nissan Frontier with standard 310 horsepower, advanced tech, and 281 pound-feet of torque. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work. In traffic so slow, connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Got my Prevnar 20 shot. It's a pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. For us wise folks, it helps protect. I'm 19, strong. And asthmatic and at higher risk. Get vaccinated, but, but nothing when grandma speaks. Grandson listens. 19 or older with chronic conditions like asthma, diabetes, or chronic heart disease, or 65 plus, you may be at higher risk for pneumococcal pneumonia. Prevnar 20 can help protect you with just one dose. Prevnar 20 is approved for adults to help prevent infections from 20 strains of the bacteria that cause pneumococcal pneumonia. Continued approval may depend on a supportive study. Don't give Prevnar 20 if you've had a severe allergic reaction to the vaccine or its ingredients. Adults with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. Side effects include pain and swelling at the injection site, fatigue, headache, muscle, and joint pain. For full prescribing information, please call 1-855-213-2138 or visit Prevnar 20.com. Ask your doctor or pharmacist about getting vaccinated with Prevnar 20, even if you've already received another pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. Can we dive into back into racism for a second? Um, <laughs> let's dive into it. Um, you know, the, the role of systemic oppression and the role of racism on our mental health. What does that look like? And what is the toll that that actually takes on us emotionally and psychologically? It's, it's a tremendous toll in part because we just move through it like it's air. And it, it, mm. like, that's what that system is about. It is everywhere. It is you know, not just driving down the street and being pulled over by the police and being hypervigilant, but it's also, you know, in the Supreme Court uh, nomination and dealing with that. It is in the classroom and having one's child in the classroom where they're wondering what the teacher is doing. My child has said to me, mom, they did that because they're racist. You know, he could say that at nine years old. Wow. His mom having to figure out how not to come in weapons hot uh, because that's how I feel, because I don't want to be dismissed because I'm a black woman. It is it is everywhere. It's the neighborhoods where we live. It is everywhere. And because it's part of the narrative of what it means to exist as a black person or someone who identifies as a black person in this society, it means constantly figuring out how to navigate how one will be perceived and being especially conscious not to internalize that. I had a conversation recently with a young man that this stuff is going to happen over here. So this is the pot over here where this stuff is happening. This is the pot where you're clear about who you are and mm -hmm. that anyone is saying about you that is dismissive or denigrates you, you know, denigrates, that yeah. you down as a black person that has nothing to do with you. And mm -hmm. that's that we unfortunately have to balance 
that does require work and that is exhausting, but it's how we get to the other side of this stuff. I I believe that. Yeah. You know, something I've been thinking about is like, how long does it take for the world to change? And so like, as I'm, as I'm looking, I think, I think about 500 years is where I'm sitting right now. Um, I, I've just been really thinking about history and I've been thinking about the way that our systems change, the way that our consciousness collectively shifts when it happens in the bigger degree. And, you know, thinking this, all of this is by design, this moment of mental health, um, this exploration of self that we're all kind of given a key to this, this grand moment of, of spirituality that's happening in a more mainstream way than even, you know, some of the original new age movement did, um, 60s, 70s, 80s, 70s. But so I just keep thinking as we're doing all of this exploring, like how long does it take to actually remove like American racism, especially from the fibers of our society? Um, I know I won't be here for it, but at least in this form, but it's just, we're doing tremendous work right now. I think from a psychological level, what is your viewpoint of it? I may be a bit of a cynic, Uh oh. <laughs> but okay, 500 years would compute with my cynicism because I, I just, I don't have the confidence that it'll go away for a really very long time. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll go with 500 years. You know, I was looking at my like, okay, let's see, we got 500 years to go. Okay. All right. Um, and that's why it's even more important. Part of why I wrote the book, because I, <laughs> this ain't going nowhere. Yeah. So, yeah. so we have to take control of these narratives and not as individuals, because it's too hard for individuals. We have to do it as communities. We mm-hmm. have to. Now, of course, you know, our community struggle because we have understandable issues with trust that started with chattel slavery um, that we have to work through. But mm. but we can't we it, folks. Racism is there for a reason. It was it was built. It was intentional. And the master's tools cannot destroy the master's house. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The master's tools cannot destroy the master's house. I'm pretty sure that's Audre Lorde. Wow. How, how do, okay, that is like, wow. How does that fit into the way we need to understand how to cultivate tools to heal us, to fuel us in the ways that we're deserving? Well, I think that when we, when we start there and we realize, because so often we're thinking, okay, maybe we can just get some different legislature. You know, maybe if we just get a DEI consultant at this predominantly mm. corporation, that that'll fix it. We have to realize that that's not going to fix it. it. It looks nice. It feels good. But that is not the solution. And once we figure that out, we're able to say, as an example, what the Black Panthers did in the 60s and 70s. Like, we're going to provide for our communities and we will build what we need. We can't rely on other folks to, one, undo racism or two, build what we need. We have too much Activity to even rely on what could be built from someone else because we need something from from within us that speaks to our soul that speaks mm. to us really deep way and I'm convinced that we have it I, I truly am but we have to recognize that we need to get there first yeah and we're, you know we're, we're starting to see it you know we're we're starting to see us building what we need we need more mm. than we need a lot more 
Well, let's check in in 500 years. Um, I don't know what we're going to look like. So, and I just have to give a heads up to everybody listening. Uh, you might vaguely hear a little boy screaming in the back of this episode <laughs> or laughing or dancing. Uh, my my soon-to-be four-year-old is on spring break and he is frolicking around the house. So we are doing our best. <laughs> Dr. Rita, you know, we are, we're kind of deep in some of the fibers of understanding um, the path to healing, the path to psychological understanding in this moment in human history. We talk a lot on this show about ancestral healing and about ancestral trauma, and especially understanding why so many of us may be finding ourselves as the first in our lineage to maybe shift things in a new way or to bring a new type of parenting forward or bring a new type of self-love or family love forward. Um, And we're all learning in real time as we go, and we're all kind of dissolving and releasing in real time as we go. Why is this so hard? You know, if you could speak to especially, you know, what is it about the complex, deeply complicated history of, and I'm going to specifically speak about the Black experience, but this is really for the American non-white experience um, in this country. You know, what what are some of the layers that people aren't seeing and the connections that people aren't seeing that make it as challenging as it feels? Debbie, there are so many directions that that... (laughs) And I only got you for a little while longer, but you know... (laughs) Um, in my head, the way it goes, it's like, what about this? What about that? And one of the things that I find most fascinating is the way in which people of African descent have had to minimize and deny what it means to be African. Um, recent interview with um, Brother Smokey Robinson recently, and he said he didn't want to be called African-American, he's just black. And it reminds me of a conversation I had with a grad, with an undergraduate student in my black psychology course years ago. And he said, why are we talking about Africa? You don't see me sitting around beating a drum. And there is a disconnect between what it means to be, what it means to be African and, and who black people are wherever we are in the diaspora. Because part of survival has been separating ourselves from being African because that's that's a bad thing. That's a negative thing. Africa's the dark continent, despite the enormous resources on the continent. We brought the culture with them. Like we didn't just show up in 2022 as like people of African descent who don't have a cultural connection to being African. The reason we're as spiritual as we are, the reason that we survive the atrocity of chattel slavery is because of the culture that we brought from the African continent, meaning, you know, the belief in the higher power, the sense that it's not just me as an individual, but that I am connected to the universe. We brought that with us. The sense that family isn't about a blood relative and, you know, who got the same mom and the same dad, like that's not who family is in a traditional Mm. African orientation. It's your play cousins. Uh, in fact, there wasn't even language there. In some dialects, there isn't a word for cousins. Everyone's a sister and a brother. And so we were able to uh, to survive being snatched from one home to the next home because everyone just absorbs 
Wow. Like that is always who we've been, but because we don't know to attach that to Africanism and that we mm. this bad thing, we don't know who we are. And there is no one, no community that can thrive and be successful without knowing who they are. We got whole mm. movies about heroes knowing who they are and then achieving some triumphant goal because they know who they are. And so it, it always saddens me, uh, you know, when folks try to separate themselves from the continent. Yeah, we've been here more than 400 years, but guess what? You know, we've survived not being integrated. We, we still don't have integration. If anybody goes to a public school, we still don't have integration. And so we still have the culture that we brought with us that we have used to survive generation after generation. Mm-hmm. My parents taught me, their parents taught them, their parents taught them. It's not been that long. And so that's why in a lot of ways we see ourselves, we experience the world so differently because we have a different history and yeah. that's community. And we have to be, we have to embrace that. You know, we, that's where we have to begin. And I'll have a conversation with anyone who says, well, I'm not African, so I don't know why we're talking about Africa. I'm always glad to have that conversation. Hmm. Yeah, that brings up a lot because I think, well, as with all the things, you know, it's so it's so layered and complex. It's like Africa is the largest continent, uh, just, you know, just a phenomenal, the, the works that have been added to humanity from that one continent alone in human history. It's just like, my God. But then I think, too, it's like when you come into this country especially when slavery happened, people were coming from so many different places. And then, you know, part of what comes forward for me is like, they're probably in our ancestry had to be almost somewhat of a release from remembering we were from Africa because it was too painful. You know, you think about not being able to get back somewhere. And after the first or second generation that came here dies off. It's like, even if you got on a ship, you may not know where to go to be with, you know, your, your own families and your own ancestry. And then I think on the flip side of that, it's, it's felt like sometimes in the U S that there is this rejection of the African-American black American experience by those in Africa. So there feels like there's a disconnect for some. And so in a variety of ways, Um, but what you're saying is so true. And it, it reminded me of, um, my divine sister, Queen Afua, something that she shares so often, um, with her, with her amazing group of women that she works with the sacred, sacred healing and the sacred woman. She, she says all the time that we're just remembering, um, natural African lifestyle. This is just natural African lifestyle, you know? Um, and there's so much disarming sometimes that has to be done for what is naturally ingrained in our genetic systems and our bodies and our souls to be an acceptance of it. Yeah. And we have to be, you know, we first have to be informed, um, you know, in recognizing how, how it exists in us because we don't have that language. And one of my favorite things to do, I talk to my students about, um, you know, we talk about CP, CP time. I'll just say for the audience who does not know, um, you color people time um, <laughs> that folks are oftentimes late or not where they're supposed to be um, based on the clock. But 
if you recognize that it it is okay to have a different worldview. Um, so worldview says time is linear. So you know, if you're five minutes, uh, if you're if you're there at the hour, you're late. You know, military. If you're there five minutes before the time, then you're on time. And everyone is supposed to be where they're supposed to be at a designated moment. But if you think of time differently, and if you think of the value of relationships, mm-hmm. and I'm late to this conversation uh, with you, Debbie, because I was having a conversation with a sister and connecting with her. And so I wasn't valuing, I have to get here at X hour. I'm valuing that relationship and spending time with that person such that the thing that I'm doing doesn't take away from me being where I'm supposed to be, but it still recognizes or prioritize the relationship that I'm in, in that moment, mm-hmm. not some future event or future situation. And I say all of that to say that while we have put down a lot of the ways that Black people do things, that when we dig a little bit deeper, we have to recognize that there could be a, a bigger cultural meaning mm-hmm. and that We've just lost a lot of that language and we've internalized racism and saying, well, the way that black people do things is just wrong and backwards. Well, no, it's different. It's, it's different, but it doesn't make it deficient. And those we probably need to have more of starting with our, our little kids um, in the, the, the little so they can better understand. It's different, but it doesn't make it deficient. Mm. Oh. Mm, mm, mm. That is beautiful. When we think about the effects of the family structure, psychologically and emotionally, um, can you speak to to really the tr- some of the kind of natural, almost inherent trauma that we're each carrying that can date all the way back to broken family structures and slavery and then mass incarceration of the Black community? Um, all, all of the different systems that have been put up at every turn to kind of break down Black family structure? You know, I, I think it comes down to survival through adaptation. Mm. So trauma happened. There's some index event that happened two generations ago. And the person who experienced that trauma maybe didn't have any support. They didn't have anyone around them who was able to say, let's sit down and talk about this. But instead, because they themselves were dealing with trauma or they themselves were dealing with something else, they said, you know what, you just got to keep it moving. Or they deny that anything happened. And so that person carrying this trauma that manifests in ways that looks like them being angry all the time, Mm -hmm. already, they're always irritable. Like they parent from that place. And then that child, experiences that from their parent who has untreated, unaddressed wounds. But they don't know why. You know, our children have no idea why their parents do what they do. And that's why we always hope that, you know, we as adults, we as parents can can fix what's going on with us so that we don't uh, pass it on to our children. But that is really, really hard work. And instead, we're just trying to get from day to day doing the best that we can, you know, and, and everyone is doing the best that they can, right? Not recognizing that they kind of have ankle weights on. It's kind of holding them back. Mm-hmm. We have to replace those, those ankle weights and repair those. And again, understanding that we're trying to survive, we're adapting to what we have. So if someone has access to therapy, 
Well, yeah. I mean, they may go to therapy and get the work done, but if they don't have access to that or they don't believe in therapy or they think therapy is for white people, then they're just going to do the best that they have with what they have access to. All right, so there we were, cruising through the new open-air zoo, when I realized that the park was closing in like 15 minutes. Luckily, we were in my Nissan Rogue. With its powerful DC turbo engine, well, we had time to see all the animals. Whoa! <laughs> and outrun a few! Drive the Nissan Rogue. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work. In traffic, so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Dropping gem. Something I'm really hoping gets conveyed in this episode, especially if there are any facilitators that happen to be listening right now of sacred work, of healing work. Um, if there are therapists listening, if there are energetic healers listening, meditation teachers, really sit with the thoughts, if able, around this layering that you're hearing. Because a, a theme, I think, in our episode that we're speaking to, Dr. Rita, is you know, the idea of those ankle weights. And I think just in this episode alone, and we haven't even scratched the surface, we've identified like 50 to 100 potential ankle weights. But imagine that someone that you are teaching meditation to, that you're given, giving guidance to emotionally or spiritually, you know, really understand that we are walking to the table sometimes, some of us with each leg having 50 different, really specific angle, ankle weights weighting us down. And that it is kind of this delicate surgery that has to be done to release each one. And each one has to be released for the betterment of the whole being in front of you. Um, because that, that piece, and I'm curious if this happens in the psychology world, um, this piece happens in the spiritual world so much, this idea of, yeah, but we're all souls and we're all one and we're all, it's all about love. We just all have to remember to love. And everyone that I talk to about this, I share this quite a bit. It drives me nuts because we are not all arriving as equals in some of these scenarios. There are karmic plot patterns at plays. There are these systems of oppression. These are the, the societal weights, these ankle weights. And some people have such a fully loaded curriculum in this life, you know? And so it's not like all of this, no healing is one size fits all. But if there are especially practitioners listening, please, please, please um, bring this a little, bring this a little closer to heart. Consider 
kind of diving into your curiosity with understanding what different groups of people, what be, might be some barriers for them um, that they don't, that they may not even be aware of. But in, in the psychology world, I, w- I would just love your thoughts on all of that, Dr. Rita. Well, you know, I mean, psychology, it's, it's, it's interesting. A lot of the evidence that we use does come from a more Eurocentric paradigm. Though I will highlight that psychology, while many may think it's the study of the mind, is actually technically the study of the soul and the spirit. Mm, yeah. But historically, you know, Greek scholars said, well, we have to be able to count and physically see. So they dismissed soul and spirit for what could be seen as behavior and actions. Mm. So that's one bucket with psychology. And so the way that that has fast forward to to now, you know, to the 21st century, even back to the 20th century, was being able to look at more individualistic behavior. So being able to see what the person is doing or what they're not doing and not really making room for that which cannot be cannot be seen. Um, So psychology, I think, has a tremendous limitation in that way. Uh, What I always think is important when I'm uh, training doctoral students is to tell them that they are in a collaboration with that client. And so if that client or patient, you know, has a strong spiritual sense, they have a religious perspective, they have to integrate that into the work that they're doing to the best they can. But as you might imagine, there aren't a lot of psychologists who are comfortable having those conversations um, because we think that we have to be experts in everything and we can't um, and yeah. we often have to. But it is a limitation in the discipline of or specifically, I will say in clinical psychology. So that's my area that is clinical psychology. We deal with more se- severe kinds of challenges and problems with depression mm-hmm. and anxiety. Uh, other types of psychology, as you know, does make room for considering spirituality. But yeah. this is something that, you know, we have to be much more intentional about, in, especially in clinical. Mm. I would love your your expertise right now, um, especially around clinical psychology. How How does someone know what kind of maybe cognitive mental health assistance that they need? You know, when you, when you think about... Um, kind of some of the different layers and levels within psychology, like how, how does someone know if they need to see a psychologist, a psychiatrist or a therapist? That's a good question. I I'll start with psychiatrists because uh, psychiatrists have MDs. They have medical degrees. They go to medical school and typically not always the case, but, but overwhelmingly they are the ones who are prescribing medication. So you may see your primary care doctor who can also prescribe medication, Um, But ideally, someone who is experiencing severe anxiety or depression, and I highlight those because they're the two most common types of psychological problems, anxiety and depression. What would Um, severe be, if I could ask that? So more severe, we we designate severe as it's impacting their capacity to do their work. So they may not be able to get out of bed and take care of children. You know, they were able to go to work at one point, but now they just don't have the wherewithal. Uh, They can't maybe take care of themselves. And to be honest, a lot of people are having these conversations. But for me, if you're someone who has type 2 diabetes and the doctor has said you need to walk 15 minutes a day, Um, And you need to manage your diet and take your medication for your insulin to manage your insulin. And that person is having considerable problems doing that. They may be depressed. 
Uh, and I book because I don't think we realize that easily 50% of people who have diagnosed type 2 diabetes are very likely dealing with symptoms of depression. Wow. And so we're saying wow. you got to do things for your physical health, but your mental and emotional health is struggling. And so you can't take care of the physical if the mental has its own. Mm. Wow. So. Did I, I think I, I've lost yes, track. Thank you so much for that. Um, you were, you were describing for me the differences in psychiatry, psychology, and therapy. Yes. So psychiatry, MD, prescribing medication, uh, psychology, PhD, whether it's clinical or counseling, uh, they have a PhD. Individuals who have PhD understand more of the research behind why we do what we do. I'll say that again. So people who have PhDs, we're in school uh, no less than six years beyond the undergraduate degree so that we can wow. understand the research and oftentimes better fit what the person is experiencing. Mm. They need to repair what they're experiencing. That's that's a really crude wow. overview, but I, I hope yeah. that that is helpful. And then in therapy? And then there are other kinds of providers who oftentimes have a master's level degree, uh, master's in social work, um, licensed mental health counselor. They go to school oftentimes. Uh, they're in their training for about two to three years, uh, and they are able to provide psychological care. Uh, I know a, uh, a psychiatric nurse uh, at the VA here who is phenomenal. Um, and so people have different types of expertise and different experiences. Mm. And so it, that's why it can be hard. And I truly understand for the audience how hard it can be to figure out, okay, who do I go and yeah. call? Um, and that's why I say, if someone is looking for care, that they at least identify three different individuals to say, okay, I'm going to call these folks. So if they go to a session with the first provider and they say, this isn't working out, that they already have two other people in the queue so that they don't give up. Mm. Folks, they see someone and they say, therapy doesn't work. Well, therapy didn't work with that person. Yeah. It doesn't mean that there isn't someone out there who is a good fit. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Because I think, you know, therapy... Well, all of it, nothing in life is a monolith. So there's always going to be you're exceptional, you're great, you're good, you're solid, you're not so good, you're mediocre, you're awful in every field, you know, and, and people could have the exact same degrees and still fall on different, you know, rungs of that, of that tier. So different tiers. Um, so I think that's important to know and, and that you can also kind of date around like you can see what fits for you you can potentially ask to schedule you know like a 15 minute pre-date to mm -hmm. see if that's like a natural flow or fit um but we have options on how to show up for ourselves okay last yeah. question because i i know i can't hold you you got busy life lots of students um i would love i would just personally really love to know dr rita you know because i imagine to a certain degree there has to be some excitement about this fast paced forward movement into an area of your expertise, you know, that, that people are really coming into these new understandings in such an urgent way. And, um, and your work, it influences so many people. So I would just love to know what you are excited about in your field of study right now. Um, and any last thoughts 
I, I really am excited that talking about mental and emotional health, and in the book, I introduced this idea of psychological fortitude because people get a little uncomfortable and antsy with this idea of mental health because we think mental health is about being crazy. But in this era of the pandemic, people are realizing that they do have to take control over their minds and how they're coping and dealing with enormous mm. stressors. And so I do appreciate that. At the same time, I'm, I'm hoping that it starts to translate into us having more providers um, and more culturally competent providers mm. that meet people where they are. Culturally competent. <laughs> culturally competent. Um, and add to that, uh, you know, culturally humble that even providers who are supposedly experts realize that they have more learning to do. Um, and yes. that <laughs> and being a provider isn't just a checklist, you know, so I said culturally competent because that's a lot of our, our mainstream language, but that suggests that you just, you know, maybe you read a couple of books and then you do a check mark. No, um, we need to have the humility to say, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I can't begin to understand, but I'm going to take the initiative to not also call up my only black friend and get them to train and educate me, but that mm-hmm. I'm going to just be a more open and aware person to the experiences that people from different marginalized groups have. We need more of those providers because I keep hearing about folks who, who are saying, you know what? I think I need help. I'm ready for help. I'm ready to get help. And the providers are not there for those folks. Um, So that, that I am both uh, excited and enthusiastic and, but it's, it's cautiously. So, um, because I, I realize that folks aren't always sure of yeah. what they're for. And actually, I will add this, just going back to our last point. If you go to your first session and you tell the provider, therapist, whomever they might be, uh, what you're experiencing, and you then ask them, how would they proceed to address your concerns? Like, what is, what is their working plan for how they're thinking about what you're experiencing and what needs to happen? And if what they're saying makes sense, then okay, you can hang in there with them for a few more sessions, you know, and continue to do your activities, whatever they're recommending. But if what they're saying just doesn't resonate, it's okay to say, okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Go on to the next person. Um, But I, overall, I, I am excited about people's willingness to take stock of where they are and to be honest and say, you know what, what I'm doing isn't working. We see this mass exodus from the workforce that has had some consequences, but also what it's saying is that folks are coming into a level of awareness, awareness that is, I don't have to take this anymore. Like whatever it is. And they are shifting to a place of their purpose. Because I think there are a lot of us who aren't really functioning in our purpose, but we're doing what our parents told us we got to do. Got to go to college. You know, you got to be a lawyer or a doctor. At least that's what I was told. Um, you got to do things um, that may not make sense for us, but our spirit is telling us something else. And I hope everyone, you know, is just even more encouraged to say, I'm going to tap more so into what that little voice is telling me and less so into what society, family, friends, uh, other people who are themselves conditioned. Um, yeah. I'm going to listen less to those conditioned people to how they're trying to condition me and speak more mm-hmm. to, to uh, that voice within, that, mm-hmm. that voice that'll get bigger if we listen to it more. 
Yes. Dr. Rita Walker, my friend, thank you so, so, so much for joining me today. I just celebrate you. I celebrate your work. Your book is in stores everywhere, online, everywhere books can be sold. It is incredible. I strongly, strongly, highly, highly recommend The Unapologetic Guide to Black Mental Health by Dr. Rita Walker. It is, um, yeah, it's, it's such a pleasure and a joy to know you. Thank you for your work. Thank you for being on this show and thank you for all you are. Thank you. It's all all love and all mutual, Debbie. I hope you know that. That I do, my friend. Have an amazing day. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. Big thank you again to Dr. Rita Walker for joining the show today. This episode was a long, long, long time coming. Um, you know, I want to revisit the card that I pulled at the beginning of the show and just Based on how your unique heart, mind, and spirit heard this episode, I want to invite you to gently close your eyes for just a moment again, and let's connect to that affirmation and see if it lands any differently, any deeper, um, or not. Let's just see how it feels now. Eyes gently closed, connecting to your internal world. I am an honest and thoughtful communicator. I am an honest and thoughtful communicator. I am an honest and thoughtful communicator with myself and others. And breathe into that for a moment, deep breath in through your nose. Hold it and release slowly through your nose. Hmm. The thing that's coming forward for me as soul work connected to this episode is, let's take a moment and notice, are there ways that we can apply that affirmation to some of the depth that came forward from Dr. Rita Walker? So is there perhaps an area where it could be really serving um, to speak with honesty, to speak with integrity, to speak with a thoughtfulness, with a care about your experiences or experiences that you're observing. Is there a part of our life that we could stand to be a little more honest even if it's just in the retelling of how we experience things to ourselves and others, is there a new kind of um, more polished layer of honesty we can come forward with or a clearing that can be done? Just for your consideration, just something to think about. And if you feel called, maybe jot down a couple bullet points, a couple thoughts. If you have the space, maybe spend 30 minutes in the park, just kind of observing your right now your past, the higher intention for your future, and how honesty, how thoughtfulness might be able to play a role in that or offer some ease or some wisdom or some deepening there. So just a thought. All right. 
Thank you everyone for listening. We will be back next week. Drop that review if you are able. Um, huge, big, 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 big love. Namaste. 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 Hey, find me on social. Let's connect at Debbie Brown. That's Twitter and Instagram or go to my website, DebbieBrown.com. And if you're listening to this show on Apple Podcasts, please, please, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe and send this episode to a friend. Dropping Gems is a production of iHeartRadio and the Black Effect Network. It's produced by Jacquise and me, Debbie Brown. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Got my Prevnar 20 shot. It's a pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. For us wise folks, it helps protect. I'm 19, strong. And asthmatic and at higher risk. Get vaccinated. But, but nothing when grandma speaks. Grandson listens. 19 or older with chronic conditions like asthma, diabetes, or chronic heart disease, or 65 plus, you may be at higher risk for pneumococcal pneumonia. Prevnar 20 can help protect you with just one dose. Prevnar 20 is approved for adults to help prevent infections from 20 strains of the bacteria that cause pneumococcal pneumonia. Continued approval may depend on a supportive study. Don't get Prevnar 20 if you've had a severe allergic reaction to the vaccine or its ingredients. Adults with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. Side effects include pain and swelling at the injection site, fatigue, headache, muscle, and joint pain. For full prescribing information, please call 1-855-213-2138 or visit Prevnar20.com. Ask your doctor or pharmacist about getting vaccinated with Prevnar20, even if you've already received another pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine.